I'm not a preacher, and I'm not drunk. I'm just a politician. Everybody, come out of your houses. Clarence Hillian is going to make you a super human being. All right, welcome to episode 17. What do we say it's 17? Old enough to know uh, better. Too young to care. Just 17, you know what we mean. I don't know. <laughs> what are some other ones? My name is uh, Mike McPadden. I am the author of Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies. Uh, joining me is my co-host from Los Angeles. Aaron Lee, uh, comedy writer and producer for shows like Family Guy and Superstore and stuff like that. And we have, uh, for the first time ever, two guests today. Wow. Two esteemed visitors to the podcast. Uh, let's introduce yourselves. Uh, we'll start with the director, please. Uh, this is Danny Wolf. Glad to be here with you guys, Aaron and, and Mike. And Mike, we met in Chicago. We did. Last year. Uh, doing a couple interviews. We did. And uh, are we going to talk about that? I mean, we want to talk about the project at hand first, but. Sure. I think maybe we can yeah, end with it. We'll wrap that up. Give a little, give a little tease where you might see Mike come uh, popping up uh, yes. in August. Now it's all I'm going to think about the whole time. <laughs> My God, what was it? What was this meeting? Um, and the producer, please introduce yourself. Uh, Paul Fishbein. And the project that you guys are here to talk about uh, is the, I'm going to say this is a landmark series. Uh, time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time. And it's a three-part, uh, three-feature-length documentary series uh, about just what the title says, the greatest cult films of all time, uh, hosted by, I mean, this is a, a murderer's row here, uh, Joe Dante, Ileana Douglas, Kevin Pollack, and John Waters. So, I mean, I can't think of a, I mean, that is your dream team. Uh, that, that's a Mount Rushmore. It really is. cult movies. Right there. Mount Cultmore. Um, and yeah, it's uh, three parts. So the first is uh, midnight movies. The second is horror and sci-fi, and the third is comedy and cult. And that is basically what we talk about here on this crackpot podcast. That would be the umbrella. By the way, it's comedy and camp. Comedy and camp, comedy not and cult. Camp. You're right. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, it's okay. I mix those words up um, often on the show. So. Um, and all three episodes are available now, uh, video on demand. I watch them on Amazon Prime. Um, I'm sure iTunes, wherever you get your VODs. iTunes, Fandango, Voodoo, even your cable systems have it. Yeah. And I mean, if you're listening to this show, stop and go watch it and then come back and listen to us after. But uh, mm -hmm. Or just go right, you know, as soon right. as we're done here, because you're going to want to know the men who made this magic happen um so and you'll have to dedicate five and a half hours uh, yeah but it flies by and you're gonna want more so you're gonna want parts uh you know whatever the next topics are mondo documentaries and on and on and on um and you need time because it's one of those things you start watching and then you go oh god now i really want to watch coffee or death race 2000 or yeah. what it, you, you know what i mean like it, it just makes you nuts like i, I want to watch every movie now immediately the one that 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 happened to was assault on precinct 13 which i have not seen since 1982 and i was like oh my yeah. god that's a good movie yeah 
Yeah, Great I had that same experience. So how did this project come to be? How did you guys meet? How do you know each other? Bring us into it. Paul? Well, um, I, um, like I said, this is a dream project for me, a lifelong project, being a, a film fanatic, um, loving cult films, growing up on in the 70s, going to rep cinemas to see Harold and Maude and Pink Flamingos and films like that. And I've always wanted to do something in this genre. And so I found my first bit of financing and I called a friend of mine who I had done a TV show with. I produced a TV show with at Showtime. And I said, I need a director who thinks like I do, who's just a little bit off center and who loves, just loves cult movies. And he says, I have the perfect guy for you. His name was Danny Wolf. So I, I called Danny and he happened to be, go ahead, Danny. Driving to- down, uh, driving down, I believe, Coanga to Beverly on my way to the new Beverly Cinema for a cheerleader exploitation triple feature at Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> New Beverly when Paul called me. So it was perfect timing. And you boys have come I'm to the right podcast. I'm only on my way to the new Beverly. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and 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 it was just it was just a real meeting of the minds. Uh, in fact, after working with this guy for maybe three months, I said, I feel like I know him my whole life. He's like the guys I grew up with, the guys that used to go, you know, you know, cut out of school and go uh, go see uh, black exploitation downtown Philadelphia instead of going to class. He was just one of those guys. So, and he's a very Danny's an extremely skilled, extremely experienced. Uh, reality TV producer, director. Um, he's done more shows than you can fit into this hour or however long we're going to be talking. So he had the skill set, but he also had the dementia that I needed. <laughs> so it worked perfectly. Exactly. And yeah. Philly, That's Philly was and remains a great movie town. Actually, I disagree. Philly really? okay. was, and I grew up there. I had to find myself growing up going to see going to New York to see the films I wanted to see because they would open in New York and LA and they may not open in Philly for two, three, four, five weeks. And and Philly had a has a couple had a couple good rep cinemas and a couple good art house cinemas, but they were way behind. Right. They, they, as as being the fifth or sixth biggest city in the country, they always seemed a little bit behind. There, it's a great food town and it's a great music town, but it always was a step behind in 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 movie. I think maybe today it's caught up a little bit, but uh, which is one of the reasons I moved to L.A. Plus, had to move my business. But right. I yeah, I'm, yeah. thank you for. Uh, clarifying that I was thinking of um, in the, the kind of research that I do all the time, there were always art houses and rep houses in Philly. Um, but I get yeah. what you're saying. And there still are now. Uh, I did a book tour last summer and uh, Philly is just outrageous with uh, Phil Mocha, the Mahoning drive-in doing incredible right. work. And yeah. did you, you guys think, yeah, I think it's improved. It's improved in the last 20 years, but growing up, it was a little lacking. Sure. Know? Yeah. And uh, Danny, where are you from? I'm from right here in actually Studio City. Wow, how about that? So I grew up going to movies, you know, on Hollywood Boulevard sure. or in West. Yeah. And anything, especially anything horror that opened, I would see opening night every single Friday. Or we would ditch school. I went to North Hollywood High, so we would go to the UA Cinemas mm-hmm. in North Hollywood every Friday. And in the early 80s, there were horror movies coming out every Friday. Yeah. You know, you go see visiting hours and then the be humanoids from the deep and, you know, every mother's day. There was no shortage of, you know, low budget horror movies. So I every or we, there was a theater on Hollywood Boulevard called The World. Uh-huh. 
and it was always three movies for a dollar fifty. So me and a bunch of high school friends every Friday night would go see three horror films for a wow. buck fifty. And it was this trashy theater at the end of Hollywood Boulevard. It's not there anymore, and uh, kind of where I grew up. So that's fantastic. No problem seeing movies yeah. here. Yeah. Now, yeah, you know, I grew up uh, on Forty Second Street, going there to the movies. So same deal. Um, yeah. And I moved to L.A. in '93, uh, and it was the very tail end of those grindhouses on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I moved here in '91, so you're right. Exactly, and, that was the yeah. end. I got to see yeah, uh, any, Death Wish Five at the Pacific, uh, right before uh, the hur- the uh, the hurricane. It's my East Coast. The, the earthquake closed the Pacific. That was like that was the last thing I saw there. Mm-hmm. Great movie. I just watched that movie like a week ago. Michael Parks. Death Wish 5 is a, oh, amazing The movie. Face of mm-hmm. Death with that poster with Bronson's Face of Death. <laughs> the last Death Wish, right. yeah. Wait, is that the one you and I always talk about, Mike, where he kills the guy with a cannoli? Chicky choked on a cannoli. <laughs> Michael Parks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's yes. got the pinky going. Crazy. He's So <laughs> Michael Parks is doing this weird method acting thing where he's got his pinky extended like he's the queen drinking an invisible teacup going. We gotta get in the mind of Kersey. Kersey. <laughs> so yes. Um, so I can't believe here's what I love about this series so much is that these are the films that Aaron and I have loved the most throughout our lives, studied the most, know the most about, and yet this was still a fresh and even thrilling experience to sit through. And a lot of that has to do with uh you know, the pacing, the direction, the arrangement of everything, but the the people you got to talk, you, the dream has always been, can we just talk to Mary Warnoff for 15 minutes about eating Raul? And there she is. And yeah, it was, don't you think yeah. Mike and you and I always talk about these type of movies? Like if it's done yes. right, this was really done yeah. right. Yeah. Like, like, and it's such a pleasure because there are you and I have also talked about how over the past like 10 years there is a a documentary for every kind of obscure cult film thing yeah. or the, like that that has him but you you'll watch them and they they don't have the clips they don't have good interviews it's always disappointing and you guys got everybody it kind of blows my mind every film clip every interview it yeah it really the is music exactly that's always a big see. issue with documentaries yeah, there's like a Runaways documentary where they couldn't get any Runaways music, and I just like don't do the movie then, you know? Right, right. Well, you'd be surprised yeah. who we didn't get. <laughs> I mean, but I have to I have to say that Danny and Christine Augustin, our supervising producer, are relentless in terms of tracking people down. And, you know, for every time an agent or a manager wouldn't return our call or email, we found a publicist or we found a friend of a friend. I mean, Danny found Pam Greer through our uh, our post-production supervisor's friend of a friend. Right. Because we couldn't get Pam Greer's agent wouldn't answer us. And Pam Greer was so happy to talk to us. And we were so happy to talk to Pam Greer. Um, you know, you try and I'm just going to trash Hollywood a little bit, you know, um, we, um, we wanted to get a hold of Mike judge and Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Cause we were going to put from dusk till dawn in here. And so we called WME and we, you know, we asked for the agent, same agent for the three directors. And I was an, I was a client there 
and I couldn't get a return call and I couldn't get a return email. And they just ignored me and ignored me and ignored me. And somebody there said, well, if they were interested, they would get back to you. We got to Mike Judge uh, through his, which is called the, the, the production office for um, uh, the, t- what was his TV show on HBO? Silicon Valley. Silicon, Silicon Valley. Valley. We called the Silicon Valley production office. Mike Judge was so happy to hear from us. And we told them, well, your agent didn't even bother to call us back. Like the agents right. decide. So when you get to the talent, like Jeff Bridges said yes before the sentence was complete because he loves Big Lebowski. Yeah. And so, you know, Jeff Bridges was on board. It's it just, it's really just a matter of getting the talent to know that you're, I mean, I mean, Peter Farrelly, with all the success he had with There's Something About mm-hmm. Mary, and this was right before Green Book came out. He was so excited that we picked Kingpin. Yeah. He couldn't, he was, mm-hmm. he could, was so thrilled. He goes, people, he goes, I, I love that you picked Kingpin, you know? And so um, I think, I think it's just a matter of people that love these films, want to talk about them, but in Hollywood, you got to get through the, through the, uh, the road barrier, right. the roadblocks. And so Christine, who, who's relentless and Danny, who's relentless. And we all use all our contacts. And I wrote John Waters like five personal letters till we finally mm-hmm. got him. You know, you just have to pursue and pursue and pursue, but it, it wouldn't be what it is without the, without the people. So. And then on the, on the flip side to that, you know, a movie we omitted that I believe is, is one of my favorite films and a great cult film is Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, yeah. And we said, well, let's try to get Brian De Palma and at least Paul Williams. Brian De Palma, I think, was just finishing his documentary or he was overseas. But I remember calling Paul Williams' manager and leaving message after message after message and never getting a return call. So we didn't do the movie because we didn't, we couldn't even get Jessica Harper. Wow. But what happened, Danny? What what happened with Paul Williams? (laughs) Right. Here's what happens is now jump forward, you know, a year late, a year and a half later, and Paul Williams is doing the score to a play that one of our executive producers is is making right now and said, and the exec, our executive producer, Mark said to Paul Williams, you know, we tried to get you for an interview for this time warp documentary. And he goes, I didn't know anything right. about it. Right. Like, mm-hmm. We left man- messages for your manager over and a week after week after, and then just dropped the movie from the documentary and the movie should yeah. be in the documentary. And Paul Williams, what did he say? Paul, oh, I would have loved to have done the interview if I knew about right. it. Well, so that that's what you deal with a lot of times with, with managers and, and agents and publicists is, and despite That's that, the- and despite that, we did get a lot of a lot of all star talent for this. So oh, it's sure. you know, stunning. Who are we to complain, yeah. really? No, one after another, you see these faces come up. You're like, ah, they got him. They got him. This is Malcolm McDowell. They got him. You know, one after. Yeah. And the- how fun was uh, Gary Busey? I need to know. <laughs> uh, all right, how, uh, that interview must have been insane. Yeah. Well, there's two yeah. schools of thought. He he at one point. And I and I unfortunately we had a our, our cameraman turned the camera off. At one point he threatened me. Bound <laughs> to happen. That's what check that off, yeah. Would you like to know how? Yeah, please. Yes. And Danny thinks it's Danny thinks he's doing uh Well I'll tell you tell you that and then I'll tell you my theory. Okay, so so with his teeth, with his giant teeth. So is that so, how he threatened you? So he was on, you know, Gary Busey's doing his Buseyisms and he's he's calling his wife and going, hey, the guys are here to do the interview. And he's there and we're setting up. He's got this apartment in it's in Malibu. So it's in a it's a small apartment, but it's in Malibu. And so we're set up to do to do the interview. And um, I there's no room to sit where I could see what was going on. So I sat behind the cameraman 
and and Christine was off to the side and Danny was doing the interview and the sound guy was over on the side. And for me to hear, I had to, so what I did is I sat behind the cameraman, but it was on a balcony outside. So we were literally pushed against it. And I, Gary had my eye, eye line. So I had the phone off. The phone was in my hand. The phone was off and he, they're doing the interview and they're talking and I'm paying attention and I get a text and it was for the next interview we were doing that day. Like, what time will you be here? So I answer the text and Gary gets up. He goes, I'm done. I can't do this. I can't. You're in my eyesight. You're bo bothering me. I can't do this. I'm Look, of course, we had a we had given him a check. Right. So, you know, this was his little routine. But Danny thinks it was uh, art. He was doing. Uh, well, yeah, my theory is. And that was the toughest interview to do because he never really gives straight answers. If you know, you'll he'll pick your question apart. And if you have the word like life, he'll go, you know what right. life is, buddy? L-I-F-E. <laughs> Live if so it's hard to get sort of straight answers. But my and I talked to Gary before we started the interview and after, and I believe Gary believes you want Gary Busey, the mm. crazy Gary with the Gary sure. that that's what you're expecting when you interview him. So he goes into doing all this Gary Busey sort of shtick, which is very hard to do during an interview. Right. But he thinks that's what you want. Right. He thinks you want and expect sort of the crazy Gary and like Paul said, the Garyisms, which he doesn't stop <laughs> doing. They're in every answer. So I remember when doing the interview, just go like, okay, at least we got that part of an answer. Okay, at least now we have that little part. I kept thinking that, well, at least we can use that. If that's that cohesive to you, then let's give credit to Steve Austin, our editor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're picking apart. Who stitched together a conversation. <laughs> and, we didn't you know, use, I, and we didn't use several other, I mean, we could have used another 20 minutes of absolutely mayhem answers, <laughs> but you know, and all in all, though, but Gary was kind of being Gary and giving us what he thinks we wanted. And he was fine and is, and he's entertaining. And we did, you know, we used him. We didn't put him on the cutting room floor. So, but if in a warning, anyone interviewing Gary Busey, just expect uh, a little craziness while you're doing the interview. Sure. I, I think you're I think you're probably right that he's putting yeah. on a bit of a show because we had him on the Comedy Central roast and we wrote a bit for him that was we wrote crazy Gary Busey stuff and he <laughs> did it word for word and he stuck to the script. And so he, he can do that. Yeah, you know, yeah. he, he, I think you're right that it, but it's more fun to be wild, wild Gary Busey. I think that's what he thinks everyone wants. Right. Yeah. So he's just giving you what he thinks you're expecting. I mean, yeah, he's he's being on brand as we say today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. So what was the criteria? How did you choose the movies that made the cut? Well, uh, I'll start, Danny. You can pop in whenever you want. You know, <clears throat> we, we knew we had a big task. It, it, it literally did start out as a one-part documentary. So I will say that I had the money to do one documentary. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> the first week we were shooting in New York, <clears throat> I said to Danny, Christine, and Ben, our cinematographer, you know, you guys, this is um, a deeper dive why don't we try to do this as a series, which I don't recommend uh, doing because as we found out networks, they'll buy a movie, but they're not going to buy a pre-done series. They want to create their own series. There's too much, too much uh, premium put on series. So, but we decided we wanted to do maybe six episodes, six, six hours or six, you know, 45 minute episodes. And uh, cause we started out, 
by saying, our, what are the 10 essential cult films that we have to have no matter what? And so we decided, you know, Rocky Horror, Harold and Maude, Pink Flamingos, uh, Eraser you know, the Eraserhead, whatever the quintessential cult films were. And then we had sort of a second round of, well, these are important, but we need at least to get somebody from the movie to talk about them. And we sort of had layers and layers. I mean, we had 300 films mm-hmm. potentially to use, and we ended up using about, what we use, about 60 no, about 45, maybe 45, 45. Yes, somewhere in there. So, you know, again, we left a lot out that, that would deserve it. But, you know, after you get your essentials, then it's sort of let's who can we get? So, you know, I mean, I don't think there's a film in there that's not legit as a cult film. There are some cult films that are deserve it more than some of what we had, but we didn't have the people to talk about them. So it's better to have people that you could, you know, that from the films to tell their stories. And so, you know, basically we filled it in as we got people to to say yes. And, um, you know, we do have three more volumes on board. If we if this does well and we get the money, we would do three more, you know, to fill in what we missed. But, you know, you get the essentials and you make sure you get that. I mean, for example, you notice we didn't have anybody from Harold and Maude because Bud Court. Well, Danny, you tell the story. It's interesting. Yeah, Bud Court. We were interviewing Cameron Dye for Valley Girl at his house and get done with the interview. Really cool guy. And he says, what other movies you doing? We're naming them movies and we get to Harold and Maude and he goes, oh, Bud Quartz, a really good friend of mine. And we said, well, you know, we've been trying to find him. He's impossible to find. He goes, oh, I'll give you his number. He's a good friend of mine. Why don't you just call him up? So I say to Christine, our, our producer, I said, why don't you, you know, give him a message? Say we want like to interview. She calls and leaves a message for Bud Court. Like two days later, she gets a call on a Saturday from Bud Court. Not a nice call. One of the, what are you doing showing my movie? It's not a cult film. I don't appreciate you included it in this documentary. It's not a cult film. It's an American classic. It shouldn't be considered, a, you know, some people, when you say cult film, they go a different yeah. route on how they interpret what that means, even though it's a compliment. It means your movie keeps right. going and going and finding new audiences and generations every decade. So he really told her, you know, for all the money in the world, not even 100000 will I do an interview and sit down with you and talk about Harold and Maude, and I wish you wouldn't include it, wow. on and on and on. Well, there's no way we were going to take it out, because it's absolutely a, a cult film. And um, it ended up being, you know, hey, bud, we're going to use your movie. We're going to show it. it. It should be included, but sorry you don't want to be interviewed. And uh, that's kind of a shame. This, this, there's a few... I mean, Tommy Wiseau is now really the same with The Room. Right. You know, we got Greg Sestero, and that was a great interview. Yes. And Greg knows more about The Room than anyone else because he, he wrote, you know, the movie or the book. Right. Um, but Tommy, we tried to get several times and wouldn't do it. He's another one doesn't think The Room is a cult film. I will, I will, you know, I will say for, for Bud Court, um, he's consistent because I looked for, a, a, you know, an arch, archival interview with him. And I couldn't find one that was usable. And even on the Criterion uh, version of, of Harold and Maude, the beautiful Criterion Blu-ray, there's no Harold, there's no Bud Court interview. So, I mean, he's just a weird guy, but it had to be included. So, 
Yeah. Well, now, Bud Court, I kind of, I, I get like, oh, it's an American classic. What does Tommy Wiseau think? <laughs> what does he think the room is? I think what category? I think the room is a classic as well. <laughs> but he, wow, Tommy no, still kidding. doesn't get it. That's the thing, Aaron. Tommy doesn't get. He still thinks he made a normal, good, solid film, and that's why people go to midnight showings because they love right. the movie. He doesn't understand still to this day that we're laughing at and with you, right. not for any other reason. You didn't make a good movie. Yes. You made a cult film. People throw spoons <laughs> in the movie theater. That's what happens in a midnight yeah. showing of a cult film. They're not going because they appreciate your acting or writing. And it's that but he, particular and it's, ma- you know, madness that drives the room itself, which fueled the yeah. cult, the misunderstanding. But he also he also had his Hollywood sure. moment. He t- tagged around with James sure. Franco during Oscar season. On stage season. at the Oscars, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was on yeah. stage at the Oscars. He 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 was on all the late night talk shows. He got his Hollywood sure. moment. And, you know, Kevin Smith makes a really good point in our documentary when talking about the room. He's, you know, he's sort of saying, look, you know, he's it's just guys that want to do something that have passion, that do whatever it takes to get there. And, you know, there he says he says it wasn't much different than what he did making clerks so i kind of get that you know and it's it's the ed philosophy that we talk about when we talk about plan nine from outer space you know it's not whether you're making a bad movie it's you're making a movie right you know you're making a movie when you make the movie that's an achievement to to actually make the film it's it's performing the impossible making a movie it really is yeah yeah and i think that's why we love ed wood movies and the room because these guys who can't do it have done it. And that's what comes yeah. across. Mm-hmm. And that's what I loved yeah, I in the discussions so. of particularly Ed Wood films and particularly Owen Gleiberman on Glenn or Glenda, which is that mm-hmm. this is really a kind of, this is a great avant-garde art film and an extremely personal vision. And yeah, it's hilarious and bizarre. and But there is such power beyond that. And I think that's also what, drives a lot of the Ed Wood cult and a lot of the just cult passion in general. For sure. It's funny. You had mentioned, uh, just to digress for a minute, you know, the movie, you know, like Paul said, we had about 300 films up on our board and we kind of tiered them. And, but it's amazing when you start doing the interviews, you always get from whoever you're interviewing, Hey, you're not doing Caddyshack. Hey, and Uh, like with Rob Reiner, we're interviewing him for Spinal Tap and he says, why aren't you including Princess Bride? That's a cult film. Yeah, that is a cult film. You can't do every movie. Gina Gershon, we're talking showgirl. She goes, you know, Bound is a real big cult film. Aren't you including Bound? So it did get to the stage of, you know, you can't, Paul and I kept saying, we can't do 150 movies. Right. We don't have the time. But there's so many other films, obviously, we could have put in. Right. That are great. El Topo is a great yeah. cult film. You know, Paul mentions that. I would have loved to have done Walking oh, yeah. Tall. Mm-hmm. and interview Joe Don Baker and Paul mentions the harder they come. Yeah. So there are, you know, some other cult films, right. but you know, we tried to get Jimmy cliff and we didn't get him, So we didn't use the movie, but we, we are well aware of other great cult films that those few we didn't put in, but uh, you know, I, and I will say we did lean a little bit on Danny Peary's oh, books, well. the cult film, cult, cult movies yeah. books, <laughs> um, because we knew we were going to interview him and he was great. And so we did lean on it a little bit in like, wow, Danny Peary says, yes, uh, you know, this film is is, is is a cult film. Maybe we should consider it. too. Yeah. So, 
you know, we, we, we give props to Danny because he's, you know, best. that's how Aaron and I became friends. Uh, initially we were zine publishers in the early nineties, little punk rock magazines, but then we became mm-hmm. best friends through our shared love of Danny Peary. There you go. Obsessive. Yeah, he comes up on this show every yeah. episode. <laughs> it's really, yeah. literally every episode. It never stops. <laughs> Did you guys Did you ever just... get to interview Penelope Spheris? Uh, no, but I met her. Um, uh, at a screening of Decline of Western Civilization 2, which I was there in conjunction with my Heavy Metal Movies book, and she was awesome. She could not have been better. She is character. the real deal. She's the real she's deal. The real she's real deal. Whether the camera's on or the camera's yeah. off, she's that sort of, fuck you, I'm a punk, yeah. whatever, this is the lifestyle I chose. She, her boyfriend was picking her up and he had just gotten out of jail that day. Is that what happened, Danny? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she was, oh yeah, my boyfriend, he just got out of jail. He's waiting for me. So she was cool. And she was really helpful um, because we didn't know where we were distributing it yet. And, you know, she looked at me and said, well, you know, if you're going to use clips from uh, Decline, I can get them cleared for you because I own the That's movie. Awesome. And, and then connected me with Shout Factory and they were great to work with. And and because, um, you know, with music, you got to sure. be really careful yeah. that you yeah. clear the stuff. Um, and, uh, and she was great. I mean, she was recommending these this, these places to distribute art films. And, you know, she she was she was great. Yeah. So uh, I loved having her. No, it's yeah. great having you her. Who I love and uh, Penelope, um, uh, Amy Heckerling. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Who I, yeah, Amy's who great. I got to meet uh, through Gilbert Gottfried. You know, I work on their podcast, so. Oh, do you? Yeah. I love that podcast. I do the uh, social media for them. Um, it's really, you know what? It's it's really good. Thank you. Thank you. It's really, I really do like that yeah. podcast. And yeah. um, and then Martha Coolidge, who I haven't uh, met, but one of the big revelations to me, and I had never heard this, was about X and Valley Girl. And the story is, and Martha tells it in the movie, <laughs> and John Doe tells a very different story that for the band that eventually became the Plimsolls, Martha Coolidge wanted X. They were the hot band, particularly after Decline of Western Civilization. They were the big LA punk band. And uh, she and she says they really wanted to do it. And then you cut to John Doe saying, we read this script and I think, believe the quote, he said, it was a fucking dumb movie. We don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, that's I was surprised because I asked him that expecting him to go into a full story of, you know, being X being offered. It's like, no, we read the script. This is a stupid fucking movie. <laughs> Thank you for what he said, which is much different than Martha's story. Which, so we included both in the documentary. And again, that's why I think the documentary is kind of cool is you do get some of these behind the scenes stories of some of these films um, from the, the words, you know, from the people's yeah. mouths themselves. No. That, that's, that's what, what makes that's what cool makes your series because truly i believed that i knew everything i could possibly know about these films and there was a lot of did discovery you, in this did you know uh because i didn't for some reason until i heard it did you know that um cheap trick was the first choice for rock and roll high school before they said i actually remotes? believe the first choice was todd rundgren and he oh, got yeah, the script and he said he wanted to do he would do it, but he was going to rewrite it as a drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then it was uh, cheap trick. They wanted too much money as we go. They go into in the in the doc in your mm-hmm. documentary. Then it was uh, Van Halen. Van Halen, yeah. And Warner Brothers said no. Like just you don't know. Mm-hmm. You can't. They can't be contained. You don't want them on a movie set. That's the mm-hmm. legend. Uh, and then it was mm-hmm. briefly Devo, 
and then it was the Ramones. Devo, yeah. Well, it works with the Ramones, oh, it's the, right? You, you can't imagine oh my it. God. I mean, you right. can, and it's fun to picture the alternate universes where those movies came out, but there's nothing better than yeah, that. I think, I think you know, and it's hard for me to say because it's like picking your favorite child, but in part three, the comedy in camp, uh, the Rock and Roll High School segment is maybe my favorite in the whole series because Alan Arkish is a great storyteller. So good. So good. Mary is hilarious when she's talking about the Ramones. PJ souls is, is a riot with her stories. And it's just, it's for some reason that segment works so well. I don't want to give too much away, but when they start talking about three finger, Harry, (laughs) it was just, (laughs) no, while we were shooting, I had to, I couldn't contain my laughter. While we were shooting, so and and I don't know, Paul. I don't know if it's in the credits or not, but a story PJ told. I don't think it's in the doc. And r- remind me if we put it as in the credits of her. She wears this red satin jacket throughout the movie. That's the Riff Randall jacket. And she went to Fred Siegel's on Melrose here in West Hollywood, and she was picking it up. Rod Stewart was at the checkout. Well, you should say that she was spending all of the money she yes. got to appear in the movie <laughs> on her wardrobe. Yeah, so she, that's true. She, she made that, no money. Like $1,300 or whatever she yeah. got paid, Roger Corman says. Um, so she, and Rod Stewart says, hey, I want that jacket. I'm going to wear that on my next tour. And she's like, no, I just bought the jacket to wear in this new Roger Corman movie. And they literally like tug award <laughs> this stack of jacket. Huh with the promise that she would send it to, she would wear it in the movie and then send it to Rod Stewart as soon as the movie wraps so he can wear it on tour. She told us she got the jacket, wore it in the film, of course, and then never sent it to him. And the jacket is like in a museum. Someone, Mm. I don't know about this. She told me it's in a museum. Someone dedicated a museum to rock and roll high school. There was a Ramones bar in Queens in Forest Hills. Oh, probably there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the story. If you tell Ross, she never sent, she, she apologizes that he never got to wear it on his tour, but same Jack. Let's, let's make an agreement right now, Mike, you and I will write five alternate screenplays for rock and roll high school with cheap trick (laughs) with Todd Runger. And you guys will produce and direct. You guys have, will you you commit time on your hands? Don't you? (laughs) And we'll do one with Rod Stewart. Get the money together. That jacket. Rod Stewart today. Sure. As a teen yeah. idol. <laughs> um, As a wax figure. <laughs> so without, I mean, you don't have to name any titles. Were there any movies you guys really don't like that you had to cover? I've gone through this with my books. Yes. I I find Eraserhead impossible to get through. Oh, have, you, have you seen my, uh, my tattoo? Yeah, there you go. Uh, I, I just I find it it's it's beautiful to look yeah. at, and it's it's interesting, but it it just it it grates on my nerves. And I of course I had to sit through. I saw it in the theater, in in at the TLA in Philadelphia when it came out or whenever. And and I love David Lynch. I like I like most of his sure. other films very much. I, I just can't get through it. And I think th- th- we showed great scenes so that, it, you know, I think that's all you need to see is what <laughs> we put in there. But then, you know, you, you hear the reactions that Amy Heckerling had yeah. to it and, and uh, Owen Gleiberman, and you kind of look at it a little differently. But, but that's the one of right. all the films we covered. That's the one that I find very difficult. Right. Danny, how about you? Is there anything you don't it's, like? 
No, I, I I liked all the movies. I yeah. wish we included a lot more right. that I liked. Yeah. Well, you'll get to them. You know, Billy ja- the Billy Jacks oh, and the Walking Billy Tall. Jack. Oh, Very near man. and dear to my Billy heart. Jack. That'd be great. But we could have a whole separate yeah. podcast on other movies. But the yeah. uh, it that but that again that would come down to you know Tom Laughlin has passed. Yeah. You know, it'd be hard to interview anybody. And Dolores, I think, passed. His daughter's recently, around. So uh, Teresa's around. Yeah, I th- yeah, yeah. I think she would be the one. So. But Paul was right, you know, uh, some of these movies were decided by who can we sure. get from the film to talk about the film. Yeah. So and I would guess that um, led to like great surprise, pleasant, I mean, was uh, Brother from Another Planet. Oh, oh yeah. Joe oh, Morton sure. and John Sales are you Amazing, kidding? just great. Yeah, And both, both really happy to talk about their movies, very accommodating. You know, I think they were honored yeah. that we included it in the documentary and we're more than happy to give us, you know, a couple hours each to talk about the film because I don't think they're asked too often. Hey, would you do an interview for Brother from Another Planet, which may be a forgotten movie to so, so many people? It's a great yeah. movie. Well, and, and it's also and, it also resonates today. It's it, sure. it feels very it feels very current to me. And I think it's it's a it's a great little um a great little metaphor for 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 what's going on right now, and I think people people should would really dig it. I mean, it's such a small unknown movie, but it does have a pretty big cult following. It ran for years initially, as I recall, and uh, yeah, no, it was great to be reminded that that cult was there, and people still yeah. love it that remember it, and people will now discover yeah. it as a result of that. It, exactly that's it mike is how many people have watched our documentary or maybe never saw the movie and only heard about right. it. i've heard i've heard that so much lately oh beyond the valley of the dolls i've heard about that movie <laughs> now i want to go check it out because we show these outrageous clips and you hear from john lazar and dolly yes. reed and eric Gavin, and it makes one of the goals of this documentary is it makes you want to go see a movie that maybe you've never mm-hmm. seen but only heard about and that's one of the biggest compliments, you know, we get since it's come out is, oh, I never saw the, you know, a Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or a Brother from Another right. Planet or Assault from Precinct 13. Now I want to go see right. it. And that's great that if it makes you want to go check out a movie or two because you've never seen it because of our documentary, that's that's awesome. And just uh, the, the two Russ Meyer movies, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Faster Pussycat, which are my two favorites. I mean, I'm a little basic bitch that way when it comes to Russ, but they are the masterpieces. <laughs> yeah. And I agree with John Waters. Like, I mean, they're both the greatest films that ever will be made. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I was friends with Russ Meyer. Oh, well, uh, of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, so I, so unfortunately when I was friends with him, when he was alive, I didn't have the foresight to sit him down and interview him. Right. Uh because the friendship was based on, I had interviewed him and he loved the interview. And then when I came out to LA to visit my clients and stuff, he would let me stay at his house and we'd go to dinner and we got friendly uh, up until he got Alzheimer's. And then he sort of, sort of went, went the other direction. But um, I heard the stories about beyond the Valley of the dolls over and over again. Cause it's one of my favorite yes. movies of all time. And I couldn't hear enough. And there just wasn't a good archival, um, archival interview with Russ about that. We got one where he talked about, about faster pussycat. Uh, but I was happy, really happy to get most of the living cast. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so moving to see them come out vibrant, alive, happy to talk about everything. Hilarious. Yeah. Brings you right into it. That's the cool thing about our doc is 
here's a movie. So let's say you don't know what's coming up and you're watching our documentary and Beyond the Valley that all pops up as the next movie. Who expects four of the five living right. cast members 51 years later <laughs> yeah, right. that we've got John Lazar mm -hmm. and Marsha McBroom and Dolly Reed and Erica Gavin to talk about this movie that they're first still alive and like still vibrant. Yeah. But I think it's a great treat if you're a fan of the movie, you're watching our doc, you're like, well, maybe they have one of the people who are in the movie. That we have four of the five and Cynthia Meyer passed away, but we have yeah. the five original cast members and again a movie over 50 years old and and they're here talking erica gavin it. telling the story of the special effects head whatever you know when z-man blows yeah. her brains out that i had never heard anywhere and then to have her tell the story and then you treat us to that shot it's so satisfying you know one of our one of our uh, producers writers earth slifkin was mad at us he goes why are you putting that clip in you're ruining it for people i'm going yeah. ruining it for people the movie's 50 <laughs> you years old ruin anything. you can't <laughs> no, ruin it for people you're, you're <laughs> well, ruining our movie by leaving right. it out you know yeah. he was like well people are going to watch the movie and you gave away one of the best parts so I said, no, no, you, you, this is not new. This is, this is, this is okay. Right. It had 50 years to watch the movie. Right. right. <laughs> so, and, and in terms of, I also love seeing, uh, talking about people we lost, getting to see Fred. Oh, how great. One more time. That was fantastic. Well, you know, we, unfortunately, uh, during the production of this up until recently with the release, we lost a lot of people mm -hmm. because, Danny interviewed Toby Hooper two weeks before he died. We interviewed Stuart Gordon. It was his last interview, we believe, from Reanimator. Yeah. We had been scheduled to interview George Romero multiple times, uh. but he was sick and kept canceling. He died during production. The Fred Willard interview was fantastic. We had a great day at his house, and he died just like a couple of weeks before mm the release of the comedy where his best in show segment is. So we sort of unfortunately have had a uh, bad effect on people's lives. <laughs> <laughs> this is a problem. Oh, and not to mention Sid Haig. We got his right. last interview oh, yeah. for Devil's ben Rejects and he passed away. Ben, ben Barinholtz. We got his last. I got to tell you, I was so thrilled to see Ben Barinholtz. I was like, man, that, well, they did it. They got him. That's well, great. Ben was not in great shape. He to was see him coming off surgery. Yeah. He was he was not doing well. He was on some sort of medication. He fell asleep during the interview multiple times. Again, kudos to Steve Austin to be able to pull something from there to use because we we it was tough with Ben. We felt bad for him. Uh, he actually was fine after that. and He moved to Prague right. and spent the last couple of years of his life you know, happily in Prague. But um, yeah, I mean, you know who Ben Barinholtz is. Most people don't know uh, his connection to David Lynch and Eraserhead. And really, the he's the the, the, the godfather of midnight he, movies. He essentially invented the midnight movie as we understand it now at right. the Elgin exactly. Theater on the west side of Manhattan, beginning right. with El Topo um, in 1970-71. And right. then on through uh, Pink Flamingos up until Eraserhead. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we unfortunately uh, lost a lot of people that um, we interviewed. And in the, the upcoming one that you're in, we got to interview Sylvia Miles. Oh, cool. And she yeah. passed and she passed away after um, after being interviewed yeah. by us. You sure so she didn't pass away during the interview? <laughs> a couple of times I thought she might have. <laughs> 
I wonder, <laughs> she was good that day. It was a big day out for I wonder her. where yeah. I am in the Deadpool of uh, no, no. <laughs> we're done. We're done. Okay. We're done. We're done killing well, off that's, our uh, You know, that's a big issue with the Gilbert Gottfried <laughs> show also is people die while they're waiting to get on the podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, speaking of Fred Willard, I mean, yeah, I mean, he is he was every bit as great as you'd expect him to be. He said he was he was a genius. Yeah. He was a comedy genius. He really was. Yeah, just just seeing that Spinal Tap clip, oh, I was like, <laughs> I was dying. I, it, yeah, he's so hilarious. Yeah, he really is. So I also want to. This is something that uh, we have talked about elsewhere. I want to thank you guys for not including trauma. <laughs> Do we want to talk well, about that, that decision? We, What's that? We did have that discussion actually, Paul and I and Irv uh, when we started. Right. And it's like, should we include the Toxic Avenger or any trauma films? And, and my point, and Paul and I talked about this and agreed, it's almost like they make cult films to be cult right. films. Like they're, the movies we chose weren't made as cult right. films. They were made as movies that became cult films. And I sort of contend that Lloyd Kaufman sort of goes out and makes cult films. Well, you can't make a cult film. film. Right, you, you can't make a cult film. But his The audience are, makes a cult film. Right, but his situation's a little different. Where they almost sort of—that's where they start. I did. I, I did. A, we're making a cult. I, I did make an argument for maybe including one as representative of the the direct to home video era. Yeah. Uh, but mm -hmm. but Irvin Danny talked me out of it by saying it's too self conscious. That's it's it. too designed right, right. for it. You can't. You, you can't give them credit. Right. It's a cult film is something that the audience finds and makes their own. And this guy is purposely yeah. doing like bimbo bowlers from the Buffalo Bowlerama. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just you can't. Sorority you know, you can't, in the slime ball Bowlerama. Whatever that was. Yeah. So, you know. One one thing that jumped out at me seeing, especially clips from like Pink Flamingos, John Waters, in terms of that is like, a lot of these people that are in here as cult film directors, they, in a sense, they didn't have money. They were, you know, outsiders. And in some sense, they understood what audiences want better than mainstream films of the time, even. Like, they're clued into some wavelength of like I'm like Russ Meyer being another great example. I know exactly what the audience wants. I, I, and, and to that point, to that point, I think it's also having their vision. They're, they have a vision of what they want, and it's it's the passion that they have for what they want. I mean, Russ had one passion: big breasts. <laughs> yeah. But he was mm -hmm. a skilled filmmaker, so he took that skill set and combined it with his passion. And that's why you have it. John Waters, yeah, it was out. He was an outsider. He he had a group of, of of friends that were outsiders, and they wanted to make what he referred to as outsider art. You know, just something for them, for their audience, for, for their friends, and for people that are like minded. And you know, when you make something, when you you're good at something, and you make something that you're passionate about, the success will come later. You know, it will come. The audience will find it. You know, this this documentary series, I feel like this audience will find our documentary series in time. If they don't see it on its first transactional VOD run, we're going to find some place to stream it. We're going to it's going to be on some network. It's going to be out there and you're going to be able to, to access it because it's it's, you know, that, 
It's the whole idea about it. Get it into the marketplace and the audience will find it. And it's interesting with John Waters is in the, in using Female Trouble and Pink Flamingos. Those are cult films. He had no money to make these movies and he used his friends and he used Baltimore as his backdrop. Then it's sort of funny when he, Hairspray became a success and now studios were throwing money at him. It's like John Waters can't make a John Waters movie with money, like Cecil B. Demented and Pecker and even uh, Serial Mom, if you want to use that one. To me, we're never really John Waters movies. It's like, don't give this guy $10 million <laughs> to make a movie because now you're not getting really a true John Waters. Like, give him nothing. I would agree with you, yeah. In the mm-hmm. camp. You know, it's like I don't consider Cecil B. Demented or Pecker John Waters movies because he had money. Right. And his cult films are cult films because he had no well, money. But that's not and fair. He, I think Hairspray was terrific yeah. and he had plenty of money for but Hairspray. That, but that, no, that's to me was the movie that got him. Like Polyester really didn't. It there was a Hairspray next that became sort of, all right, now he made this really good, more successful movie. Now the studios after that, I think it was Crybaby was the next movie. Right. Let's throw him now studio money. And I think after Hairspray, the four or five movies he did are nothing like watching Pink Flamingos or Female Trouble or Polyester. I would I would agree with like that. With and Nick, I, I yeah. love Polyester and I love Hairspray. But then after that, that to me yeah. is the line. So, Well, Desperate Living is good. Oh, too. Well, no, I mean, everything yes. up to yes. that yes. is mm-hmm. my favorite right, thing that right, ever right. existed. So, Right. Um, so, all right. Uh, should we talk about the upcoming project? Sure. Mm-hmm. So you're in it. Mark That's right. The one star- starring. Starring. Name you're of in the it. title. You're in it. You're in it. <laughs> so what is the full title? Paul? D- Danny? Okay. Oh, Skin, a history of nudity in the movies. And what it is, is a serious look at nudity throughout the history of Hollywood, starting in the silent era going through an explanation of what the, the production code did, the directors who broke the production code into the 60s and the, and the maverick cinema of the 60s, the formation of the MPAA, and up through the 70s, 80s, and 90s to today, uh, talking about censorship and talking about nudity and the use of nudity. And it has a, and it has a bookended discussion of the Me Too movement right. so that you understand what nudity is today in Hollywood. And um, it's pretty comprehensive. It's 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 long. It's a little over two hours, uh, and the people who have seen it so far seem to love it. They they say that they learn a lot, and it's not lascivious, unfortunately. <laughs> and it's got plenty of nudity. It's got tons of nudity, but it's not lascivious. It's not nudity for the sake of nudity, and it's directed by Danny Wolf. And it's a little more of a traditional doc than the cult film docs, which are a little more of a, uh, I don't know, clip show kind of thing. Whereas the, this is more of a, you know, this is a narrative uh, that you can follow. Yeah. Yeah. And and why Mike McPadden is in skin is certainly the eighties teen sex comedies are a big part of nudity in the history of film. And Mike, no one knows better than Mike, that period of the early 80s, the teen sex right. comedies. He's written books on the subject. So, you know, to talk about private school and even some of the women in prison films, yep. Chained Heat and um, Valley Girl and Fast Times Ridgemont High. You know, Mike obviously is an expert on all those films, but that's a very important period of time in film history that early, you know, the early teen sex comedies of the 80s, because there were so many of them. Yes. 
And as Martha Coolidge told us, and you know, some of these movies at that time, they had to have nudity. Mm -hmm. That was required by the distributor. It's like Valley Girl, I think she said you she was required to have four or three or four scenes yeah, four. of nudity. Four, four scenes or the movie shots wasn't of be female breasts. Yeah. Hmm. Correct. Yeah. And in the script, I think she had three and had to add one on the fly with E.G. Yeah. Daly. And that was a whole different discussion. But it was a, that's a very important time in cinema history for nudity. And even the early horror films mm -hmm. that were becoming popular then where, you know, you were always seeing the first victim nude and move, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Streets in the early Friday the 13th. And those were all from the early 80s where nudity in early horror films yeah. was essential especially that you know the the foreign distribution well great so when it, when can we expect that as an ETA yeah it's uh, I'm looking at the date as we speak it's August um, it'll be out first on transactional so Amazon iTunes voodoo fandango all of those August 18th Wow coming right up is the release date I hope. I hope. I mean, it's planning, but uh, we're going to start the marketing probably in uh, a couple of weeks. We, we're we're going to, you know, you'll start hearing more about oh, yeah. it. But um, I'll yeah, start talking more August about 18th. it. August 18th. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, yeah, you were great in it. Thank you. And so was your buddy, Mr. Skin. Oh, Mr. Skin. And we have great people in this one, too. We have Mariel Hemingway and Eric Roberts. We have uh, Bruce Davison, Linda Blair, um, you know, Amy Hackerling again. Mamie Van Doren. Mamie yeah. Van Doren. Like I oh, said, wow. like I said, we had uh, Sylvia Miles. Uh, we had Sal. Shannon Elizabeth and Malcolm McDowell yeah. again. Diane uh, Franklin. It, it, yeah, great cast. Fun, fun, breezy. People like it. People saying they're learning a lot. That's so. the thing. What I love about it is um, is that, yeah, it, it goes by very quickly. And obviously, you're not going to be bored. There's nudity every couple of minutes. But it's right. a serious uh it's a serious approach that makes all the difference in the world. It becomes right. a real documentary um, right. of a topic that traces it through almost a hundred years of, of history. Yeah. Who, Good. who was more insane and difficult to interview Gary Busey or Mike? <laughs> would you say? No, Mike's very, I loved interviewing Mike because you know, you ask a question, you get the answer. <laughs> yeah, you actually, Mike's easy to edit because he, he gives you nicely packaged sound bites, you yes. know? And so, and so it's like a, a lot of times Danny, when he's in, Danny does all the interviews when he's, you know, he's got a skill, it is a skill set. So he knows in his mind what he needs for the movie. So if he'll ask somebody a question and they don't quite give him the answer, he will get back to it and get them to say it exactly as he needs it for the movie because he's in his mind. He's going, oh, this is an important plot point. And so if if, you know, Mike would say, uh, you know, um, if, if Danny would say, you know, what's the most I'm this is I'm just pulling this out of the air. What, what's the most important nude scene of the 80s? And, um, you know, Mike might say, well, Phoebe Cates in Fast Times at Ridgemont High and then. Danny would say, well, can you say that the most important, yeah. you know, uh, nude scene of the 80s is, is Phoebe Cates? And then he'll say it. So so Danny gets those sound bites. Gary Busey, forget it. Yeah. It was that was an editing, <laughs> editing nightmare. But Mike, Mike talks in nice, compact sound bites. He gets it. So I got that easy. from uh, 
Mr. Skin, from training Mr. Skin to do the same thing for all right. these years. Right. Yeah. Writing his little sound bites. Yeah, exactly. So, and he's very good at oh, the documentary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, between the two of you, you guys know your, you know, your stuff. Thank so, you. makes the, the thing was, you know, the thing was with him is you have to make sure he goes, okay, no, this is a serious doc, so we're not going to do puns. <laughs> <Right>. We're not <laughs> going to, you know, this is not a skin interview. Right. This is an interview. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he gets oh, it. God. He gets it. He's he's also great on yeah, camera. He is, yeah. and he is. My partner, he's an executive producer on the film as well. Naturally. I'm sure he doesn't That's why he mind. insisted I'm on sure the title, Skin. I'm sure he doesn't mind. No, actually, <laughs> actually, the funny thing is it really wasn't about him. Right. It was just sort of a, a, a natural oh, no, title it, that came, came totally. to us. But, um, uh, you know, I don't think he minds people knowing he's an executive producer no. on this. So, Well, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Um, time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time, is available uh, wherever you get your VOD. Um, it is an experience. If you're listening to the show, you must have. And if Thank you, even Mike. if you're not listening to that. the show, you must have it. And I've been pushing it and will continue uh, because, you know, for us, this really is like just watching it is sort of, it's one of those dream come true projects um, that just materialize before your eyes. And, and we are in a golden yeah. age of documentaries. We have been for a while now. And this is for us, for me and Aaron and the people connected to this show, this is our dream project. Aaron. Imagine if Ken Burns was doing yeah. stuff, if Ken Burns was not doing stuff about boring <laughs> subjects like <laughs> Civil War <laughs> and hey, jazz hey, Aaron, and, and, and did about stuff we like. Aaron, did you go to the Dolomite is my name screening? Oh, I, God, I went to. That's what I see uh, I went, on your shoulder there. Above we see you. it behind you. Yeah. I went to a fantastic screening introduced by Mel Brooks at the oh. uh, Mel Brooks brought Alexander and Karaszewski up. Oh. And, and, it, and I have to just quickly tell you, it was so hilarious. Mel Brooks in his intro, he said, I saw the movie Ed Wood. I loved it. I got to know these guys. He said, uh, then they never made another movie I liked at all. <laughs> and then they made this Dolomite. <laughs> and I was like, said. God, that's the most, yes, that's the most backhanded intro. Well, but God, did I, uh, I, I saw, I have watched the, their Dolomite movie maybe 10 times. No, it's, now. it's great. It. It's, it's really sort of the, uh, it's sort of the, uh, cousin mm -hmm. of, of Ed Wood, the, yeah. the sister film sure. to Ed Wood. Oh. It has, it has a similar sensibility and it's just great, you know? Yeah. It's really, really. So, so Mel didn't like Man on the Moon. What I take? <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently. What not. about Screwed with uh, Norm Macdonald? <laughs> nope. No, nope, wasn't into it. No. Fair. No, I don't want to see it. Make another movie about a cult guy. <laughs> well, gents, this was great. Uh, we have a a Thank you. sign off that uh, I don't know how we want to handle this because we've never had two guests on. We usually ask our guests to sign off by saying crack or get off the pot. So, uh, Paul, <laughs> crack or get off the pot. You did it. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. Thank you.